The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 35. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanmerty. This episode is going to be short and anything but sweet. We're talking about Act 3, Scene 3 of the play, which takes place outside the palace. Some stage directions might tell you it's in a park or something like that, but all we really need to bear in mind is that we are beyond the walls, beyond surveillance, and beyond the safety of Macbeth's castle. As we heard earlier, Banquo and Fleance have gone out for a jaunt before this upcoming dinner, and meanwhile Macbeth has hired a couple of murderers to assassinate them while they're out. Worse yet, Macbeth even promised that he would send information as to where they should position themselves to do the deed. So the scene begins with these two murderers. Except it's not two. All of a sudden, their number has grown to three. Much as we ourselves might ask who this newcomer is, the first murderer enters the scene questioning him. He asks, But who did bid thee join with us? Where has this new team member come from? Who sent him? He answers with the only word they need to hear. Almost like a password, he says, Macbeth. The question of who this third murderer might be is a juicy one. The text gives us no answers, and across the history of the play, there have been several interesting suggestions as to who it might be. As far back as 1869, there was an essay suggesting that it was Macbeth himself. This seems a little bit ridiculous to me, since in the very next scene, Macbeth will hear about what happens here in this one, and needs to be genuinely surprised by this news. Furthermore, Macbeth spoke the last line of the previous scene, and he will speak the first line of the next scene. There's no way that Shakespeare would construct such a tricky turnaround for any actor, least of all the title character. A slightly more interesting option might be Lady Macbeth, if perhaps she listened in and heard the plot growing with the murderers and wanted to stay involved, despite Macbeth's moves to sideline her and keep her innocent of the deed. Productions have also cast Ross here, or Seton, even though we haven't really met the latter yet. I was the assistant director on a production that cast one of the witches here as the third murderer, Although it always struck me as a bit iffy to have this crossover between the supernatural but ultimately hands-off witches and the murderers who are pretty eager to get their hands dirty. Other productions have had all three witches play all three murderers. There's something elegant, maybe, in the repeating of the number three. But again, for me, each group loses a little if they're also doubled in this way. Other candidates include that servant who ushered in the murderers. Perhaps he might be growing in importance, and here he's tasked by Macbeth to keep an eye on the other two and ensure the job is done when it is done. We will see a growing paranoia in Macbeth as the play continues to progress. Towards the end of it, he'll be telling us that he keeps a spy feed in every household. It's chilling. Whoever this third party is, the second murderer is prepared to trust him. He says, 
He needs not our mistrust, since he delivers our offices and what we have to do to the direction just. They don't need to mistrust him, he says, since this third murderer has brought them their instructions and what they have to do. And so the first murderer also agrees. Then stand with us. The west yet glimmers with some streaks of day, now spurs the lated traveller apace to gain the timely inn, and near approaches the subject of our watch. This first murderer is quite the poet. Shakespeare gives some very nice language here to this man, who's already told us he would set his life on any chance. He tells the newcomer to take his position, or stand, with them. It's evening, but there are still streaks of daylight glimmering in the western sky. And now they can assume the subject of their watch, that is, Banquo, is approaching, since if he delays any longer, he'll be late for dinner. If he wants to get to the inn, Macbeth's castle, that is, on time, he'll have to spur his horse apace. The west yet glimmers with some streaks of day, now spurs the lated traveller apace to gain the timely inn, and near approaches the subject of our watch. We now get a sound effect of horses. Only the most extravagant production would have Banquo actually enter on horseback, since in the following lines Shakespeare talks us out of such a need. For starters, the third murderer hears the clatter of hooves and tells us, Hark, I hear horses. It's convenient enough. Then we hear Banquo himself off stage, or within, as Shakespearean convention has it. Banquo calls, Give us a light there, ho! The gloom of the dusk is dark enough for them to need a light. Whether the play is performed in daylight or by candlelight, it's helpful of Shakespeare to lay these little descriptions in so that we feel like it's dark. So picture it. We have three murderers perched and waiting to do the deed. They hear horses pulling up and a man shouting for light. But how can they know it's who they want? Second murderer has the answer. He explains... Then tis he, the rest that are within the note of expectation, already are in the court. It has to be Banquo. Everyone else who's on the guest list for dinner, the note of expectation, is already at the castle, so the only person likely to be approaching now is Banquo. So their target is approaching. It's nearly comical having to watch these three assassins listening for clues of what's happening. Next, they hear the horses being led away. Again, it's the first murderer who tells us what we're all hearing. He says, his horses go about. The horses are going or being led another way, presumably to the stables. And in case you're wondering why Banquo would want to dismount at this distance from the castle, we get an answer for that too. Almost a mile but he does usually, so all men do, from hence to the palace gate, make it their walk. Whatever way the landscape around here works, it is customary for those arriving to walk the final mile up towards the castle. Banquo usually does this, as indeed do all men who are visiting. Later in the play, we'll have a sense that Macbeth has a terrific open view out in front of this castle, Perhaps it's a pleasant march for that final mile straight back up to it. 
although probably wiser to do it in the daylight. With the horses led away by whatever attendants were with them, it's now Banquo and Fleance who enter, with the torches just requested. The second murderer spots them coming. He cries, A light! A light! And as they enter, the third murderer can confirm that yes, it is indeed Banquo. Tis he. This little line gives another reason for his shady presence. Perhaps Macbeth had to send him to guarantee that the murderers kill the right man. The identity confirmed, first murderer tells them to be ready. He says, stand to it. They prepare themselves. Banquo, unaware of these three murderers, is looking at the sky and reckons that it's going to rain later that night. He says, it will be rain tonight. As if to match this line, but without any more poetry, the first murderer cries, Let it come down. The three murderers set upon Banquo. This let it come down line suggests some kind of downward motion from above, perhaps. They could maybe leap down from the balcony above, or perhaps just rain down blows upon the unsuspecting Banquo. It's a scene of short, sharp violence. Banquo shouts, Oh, treachery! Fly, good fleance! Fly, fly, fly! Thou mayst revenge! Oh, slave! His line is an entire scene in itself. He realises that he's being attacked. Oh, treachery! He does his best to get fleance to run away so that he can survive and take revenge. And then he dies, calling his murderer a slave. And poor Banquo is no more. But Fleance does indeed escape. Yet another possibility for the third murderer is that he somehow helps to ensure that Fleance escapes here. In the pseudo-flattering myth of King James being a distant descendant of this very Fleance, it would be no harm to make a big deal of whatever Scottish hero guaranteed that the young man wasn't executed in this twilight skirmish. In the confusion of the attack, the light or torches have been extinguished. The third murderer takes control of the scene after Banquo is well and truly gone, wondering who put it out. Who did strike out the light? The first murderer defends himself. Was not the way? Was this not the plan? Darkness is a good cover for such deeds, after all. But they've botched the job as a result. In the darkness, Fleance has escaped, and the third murderer has to point out that there's but one down. The sun is fled. After such explicit instructions from the boss that both Banquo and his son have to go, they've only done half the job. The second murderer realises and says, We have lost best half of our affair. Macbeth is going to be angry. They will have to pay for this. It's not good at all. The first murderer is still sanguine and gets them moving regardless. He says, well, let's away and say how much is done. They might as well get moving regardless. They can go and tell Macbeth what they did manage to do at least. There's no stage direction for what happens to Banquo's body. It's a significant problem and any production will have to find a solution for it. Unlike the murder of Duncan, this one takes place right in front of us on stage. Shakespeare confronts us with it. 
We've known Banquo for as long as we've known Macbeth, and we've seen them go from blood brothers to killer and victim. And now he is dead right in front of us, and his body has to be removed. However it is managed, Banquo's body has to be taken off the stage, for reasons that will become very clear in the next scene. We're finally getting to this dinner we keep hearing about. Before we conclude here, I want to mention one final suggestion that attempted to explain the presence of the third murderer. Marvin Rosenberg, in his huge study, The Masks of Macbeth, manages to suggest that perhaps Shakespeare or another important company member had a family member come visit, one who really wanted a part in a play. Charming as this anecdote might be, it seems a huge stretch to give someone a role so mysterious and so pivotal within the story of our play. What do you think? Who do you like to imagine this third murderer might be? I'd love to hear from you. If you have a strong opinion on the subject, please do get in touch. You can contact me via the website, thehamletpodcast.com, where, of course, you'll find the text and show notes of this episode. And the podcast also has pages on Instagram and Facebook. You can get to me via any of those. I never had a blue check mark on that other site, and I must confess I haven't missed it for a moment since I deleted my account there. Anyway, do let me know who you'd cast in the role of the third murderer, and I'll speak to you very soon indeed.